Okay, well, happy to be back. I know, it was my 60th lecture, I'm not sure. Um, so I'm not going to tell you too much about me, because you've probably heard about me, except I am a PharmD. I'm in upstate New York, and I'm thrilled that you came this afternoon and happy to present with my two esteemed colleagues, uh, Charles Argoff and Michael Chapman. So actually, uh, Dr. Argoff is right across the street from me, up in Albany. And the crazy thing is, there's a Starbucks between his hospital and my hospital, and we're always texting each other and saying, let's meet at Starbucks. And then one of us gets called away for a patient, and the only time I see him is in Las Vegas or Phoenix or Florida at one of these conventions. It's, it's pretty crazy. Right, this is not, um, did the battery go dead on this thing? Not working. Oh, there we go. All right, that's me. Those are my disclosures. Okay, so collaboration. <clears throat> collaboration is extremely important, I, I think, with, with this. And it actually, it's been a theme in many of the presentations. We've had presentations, of course, throughout the, uh, the week by various practitioners, nurses, nurse practitioners, psychologists, psychiatrists, physicians, pharmacists, nurses. I don't know if I left anybody out. Maybe chiropractors, podiatrists. It's important because we all have a different expertise. I sat with a, um, <clears throat> with a physician today. This is actually very interesting. Let me make sure he's not in here. Uh, physician today that, that also is an RPH, a registered pharmacist, and he graduated back in the day when I graduated before I went to uh, post-grad. And, uh, and he said to me, uh, admittedly, um, he said, you know, we were talking about like kinds of things that, that we could do to collaborate. And he said, you know, to tell you the truth, it's been so long since I worked in a pharmacy. You know, I'm practicing medicine. He goes, I, I really don't know what the education for a pharmacist is anymore. He said, I, you know, are they really capable of doing the kinds of clinical things that you said that they should be doing? And I'm like, what? Uh, well, uh, I said, well, let me put it this way. I said, you know, from medical school, you go to school for four years, and then you go for your MD, and then you go and you do other stuff, right? I said, for, for to be a PharmD, you do your undergrad, you get your bachelor's degree, you go for four years and you get your PharmD, and then you go on and do a general practice residency, and then you go on and do a special, specialty residency. He said, well, what's the difference? I said, the difference is that in your last years of medical school, you specialize in diagnostics. In your last year of PharmD school, you specialize in pharmacotherapeutics, right? So our specialty really is in genetics and bio, biopharmaceutics and, and that sort of thing. So... I don't, I don't profess to be an expert in diagnostics. Unfortunately, uh, that, that is part of the job sometimes for me, but I collaborate with the physician. You know, so it's really very important. It's going to be crystal clear when we get through to this section. Um, and I listed there psychiatry and psychology and social work. It is incredibly important to include all of these people. <laughs> Who turned it off? That's what I want to know. Okay. Um, so, so in, our, in, in our clinic, we have a, a resident, PGY2 uh, pharmacy pain resident. She's actually right here. And then one, she's my youngest child. And, and she's not actually my child, but she's my work child. And next to her is Dr. Tim, Timothy Atkinson, who was our first resident graduate. And he now is in, uh, is in Tennessee. I'm, I'm trying, after they leave the residency, I, I like them to go to different places in the country. So I, I keep an eye out in different places. So... Um, we, we have to deal with, uh, you know, clinic issues, drug interactions, substance abuse, uh, urine drug testing, and pharmacogenetics, and we do a lot of this. 
Um, and so we're going to talk about some of that stuff. But before I get into that, I want to kind of ask you guys some questions. Prior to the year 2000, approximately how many pharmacogenetic articles do you think were searchable on PubMed? How many people say, let's start from the bottom and go up. How many people say 8,000? How many people say 6,000? You, you have to raise your hand for one of them. How many people say 6,000? 4,000? 2,000? That's the correct answer, about 2,000. I think it was 2,361. Okay, so uh, by 2013, how many articles uh, appeared in the literature? How many people say 15,000? How many people say uh, 10,000? 5,000? 2,500? 15,000. All right, 15,862. All right, so um, it, it's, it's pretty incredible. How many medications list pharmacogenetic dosing data in their package insert? How many people say A600? We're talking about the package insert, right? How many people say 300? 150? 75? The answer is 150. I believe it's 156. Now, maybe that's changed, but a couple weeks ago it was 156. All right, that's a lot of package inserts. Does anybody do pharmacogenetics because 156 package inserts say to? How many people do that? That's what I thought. Okay, so, so there, there are quite a few uh, medications that are actually say in the package insert to talk about the, uh, the genetic testing and what kinds of tests you should do. So learning objectives uh, for my portion then will be to define cytochrome P450 and understand the terms induction, inhibition, uh, substrate, um, and, and we'll also talk about uh, autoinduction, describe genetic variability and the influence of medication efficacy, understand how identifying genetic variations may allow a clinician to more effectively predict um, various uh, uh, risks and understand responses to medications, conceptualize how pharmacogenetic testing may provide valuable data for more personalized therapy. That's the key word, personalized therapy, and there is actually a push um, at, the, uh, at, at the level of, of Congress and, uh, and the presidential staff to change the world such that we are using individualized medicine. There's a lot of grants out for that. And then finally, understand how PGT uh, may influence uh, urine drug screens and provide more compliance and uh, uh, com more complete information with that regard. So this is a lot of stuff in a short period of time. Um, I mean, we could do a whole course in pharmacogenetics. So uh, I I'm kind of, once again... I'm the science guy um, with the bow tie. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do the, a lot of the chemistry stuff. So first I think you need to know what the difference are. These terms are used interchangeably often. The difference between pharmacogenomics versus pharmacogenetics. So pharmacogenomics is the study of how genes, specifically how genes affect a person's response to drugs. It is a relatively new field, but it has been around for a while. Um, and... Um, uh, so it's, it's really more related to genes and, and their functions and, uh, and that doses can be tailored to genetic makeup, whereas pharmacogenetics is a study of how the actions and reactions to drugs vary with the patient's genes. Okay, so that's, that's the difference. And you can see why they're used interchangeably because they're, they're, they're pretty uh, similar. Now, uh, in the past, uh, when we talked about therapeutics, pharmacology, and medication, uh, we basically talked about, on the right side of that pyramid, pharmacodynamics, and that's how a drug affects the body. And, you know, we can, we can drill down further, um, so not only how does the drug actually work, so, for example, we know the anti-inflammatories work by blocking prostaglandins, and then we can look more chemically 
at the whole um, arachidonic acid cascade, but then we can look even more closely um, biochemically of how the drug actually binds to the receptor using dye and trisulfide bonds. And I mean, these receptors are not really puzzle pieces. I mean, it's chemistry, you know. So, so you know, you can drill down as far as you want. And then <clears throat> uh, pharmacokinetics is how the body reacts to the drug. So if we're not giving a drug, if we're giving a um, poison, then instead of calling it pharmacokinetics, we call it toxicokinetics. Instead of calling it pharmacology, we call it toxicology. But the, the new kid on the block here is pharmacogenetics, right? So it's really difficult to do uh, best for the patient looking only about what the drug does, does to the body and how the body gets rid of it uh, without understanding uh, how patients are different. Um, so before we can really do that, we really need to understand the cytochrome P450 system because although there are uh, multiple issues regarding genetics, uh, with regard to medication therapy, this is one of the most important uh, issues that goes across all uh, medication classes. All right, so P450 is a heme-containing group, so sim similar to um, the heme that we see in red blood cells, um, that contains uh, proteins that differ um, slightly from each other with respect to the following. So they, they, they differ by molecular weight, the ability to bind... Um, uh, CO, the electrophoretic properties, in other words, if you put them on a, um, on a piece of paper and they were in a solution and they had an electrical charge, the way that they would move on that paper would be uh, different uh, based on their, their charges. They have immunological properties that are different um, and the way that they break down drugs or toxins are different. So that's how they, they all differ. But it's not actually cytochrome P450. So if you want to be a real wise, wise guy, and somebody asks you about that, you can correct them and be a real nerd and say, well, it's not, it's not really CYP-P450, it's actually CYP-P448. So anybody that was in my, my little lecture in the, um, in the middle of the uh, exhibit hall, it's because 448 is really the spectrum of light where it bends, not 450. But, but when the PhDs, I don't know if we have any PhDs in the audience, but when the PhDs developed all this stuff, um, I guess they decided that we couldn't remember 448. So it's 450, but it's really 448. So, oh, and that's, that's actually on this slide. Okay, so, <clears throat> all right, so then uh, moving on, um, these things are, are divided up by, are identified by their spectral properties, molecular mass, substrate selectivity, and uh, their immunoassay uh, specificities with regard to uh, antibody binding. If they're greater than 40% sequence identity, they're in the same family. If they're greater than 55%, they're in the same subfamily. So this slide delineates what these terms mean. Because people throw around these terms all the time, 3A4, 2D6, 2C19, 1A2, you know, I mean, well, what, are these, what does it really mean? So, I, you know, if nothing else, I'd like to leave here today understanding, you know, if, if, if people are blurting this out to you or you're using these terms, what, what it really means. So the number, after, so SIP obviously stands for cytochrome, the number is the enzyme family, all right? And we just talked about the enzyme family, right? It's greater than 40% uh, sequence identity uh, that, that's the same, right? The, the subfamily, all right? Let me go back. So the subfamily is greater than 55% homology. So that's designated by the number, all right? Um, and, then, and then the last, this is unbelievable. The last number, ready for this? The last number is the number in which it was discovered. Now that is a stupid thing to have to memorize, right? I mean, I, who cares, like, what, what 
scientist figured out what, you know, I mean, that's crazy. But um, nevertheless, that's what we're stuck with. So cytochrome 3A4, what you see on the bottom, means that the, the 3 is the, the uh, enzyme family, the A is the subfamily, and it was the fourth 3A enzyme to be, to be discovered. This is what it looks like. All right, that's the tree. So if you follow it down, so let's start on the, on the very left side and follow down 1 <clears throat> to 1A and then 1A2. Okay, 1A2 would be fluvoxamine. 1A2 would be fluvoxamine. So if you were worried about a 2D6 drug interaction, uh, which is a pretty common drug interaction, you may want to put a patient on an SSRI that doesn't affect 2D6, uh, of which most of them do. Uh, so so um, fluoxetine, for example, is 2D6. Um, sertraline is 2D6. Paroxetine is 2D6. All right, but fluvoxamine or luvox is 1A2. Uh, another common one, as I said, if you look at 2 and you move over to the right, 2D, and then go all the way down to 6, 2D6, that's very uh, important for codeine because codeine relies on 2D6 to metabolize it to its active form, morphine. All right? Uh, uh, methadone relies on 2D6 to, to convert it to at least part of it to an inactive metabolite. All right? Uh, two, now, you look at 2 uh, and, and C, straight down, 2C, 2C9. 2C9 is celecoxib. All right, um, 2C9 cell coxib, and that, and that, uh, uh, so that, that could be important. And also 2C9, there's a, there's a phenotype variation, 2C9 of, uh, of uh, blacks versus whites, so um, they have more 2C9, so that's, that's sometimes an issue. Um, 3A, 3A4 and 3A5 are the most common of the isoenzymes. So of all drugs, so 25% of all drugs go through this cytochrome system. Of all those drugs, 85% um, of all those cytochrome uh, interactions uh, go through, actually it's 80, like 84, between 84 and 86% uh, involve 3A4 and or 3A5. And so, you know, we can go through all, all of these, but, but we're not going to because I'm starting to put myself to sleep. Um, so the terminology, inducer, what is an inducer? So you've got a drug and you've got a substrate, all right? And so, so the drug combines with the enzyme, and when it combines with the enzyme, something happens. The drug either gets metabolized to an inactive form, or the drug gets metabolized to an active form, or the drug gets metabolized to two metabolites. All right, so um, that's, that's, uh, that's what happens. All right, now let's put this on the shelf for a second, um, and now you put the patient on another drug. And this drug, this drug um, uh, affects the liver and makes the liver make more of, a, of an enzyme. So let's use an example. All right. So we have we have uh, carbamazepine uh, or tegretol, which combines with 3A4, and 3A4 destroys it. Okay, converts it to an inactive metabolite. Um, then you decide uh, to give to give the patient um, a 3A4 inducer. Anybody want to give me an example of a 3A4 inducer? Phenytoin. Okay, phenytoin is a 3A4 inducer. So you give it a, a, a phenytoin. It's interesting you picked that one, but that, that, that's a very potent inducer. So you give a patient a 3A4 inducer, and what it does is the patient's on phenytoin now, and it stimulates the liver to put out more 3A4. So what happens? There's more 3A4 now to grab onto the carbamazepine, and the blood levels go down. Now, who said phenytoin? So phenytoin, um, phen well, let me, I'm, I'm going to come back to that. Okay, so what if you give an, a 3A4 inhibitor? All right, so an example of that. Grapefruit juice, 
clarithromycin, erythromycin, uh, you give that drug, and, and that drug tells the liver to shut down production of, of the enzyme. If that happens, there's less enzyme to destroy this carbamazepine, so the levels go up, right? Okay, so, so those, are, those are important things to understand before we can talk about, about genetics, all right? And then there's something called an autoinducer. That means that the, that the drug that, you, that you're giving that causes the liver to make more enzymes, also that same drug depends on that same enzyme to metabolize itself. That's why I said that phenytoin was an interesting choice because both carbamazepine and phenytoin, not only are they substrates for 3A4, they also are inducers of 3A4. So if you start taking carbamazepine or phenytoin um, and your serum levels are normal, three weeks later, your blood levels will drop. So if you've responded to the carbamazepine and three weeks later your response diminishes, it probably is because your serum levels went down. Now the interesting thing is, um, uh, I mean, well, the interesting thing is that, that, that in, um, induction takes three weeks. Inhibition takes, anybody know? 48 hours. All right? So if you give a, an enzyme inhibitor, um, like Tlapavir, for example, and a patient is on methadone, you think any patients are on Tlapavir that are on methadone? Well, Tlapavir is used for hepatitis C, right? And you may have a, a patient that's on methadone because they're in methadone maintenance, right? Okay, so you give tilapavir to a patient, and uh, you know nobody is the wiser, so they, you know, they, it's not in pharmacy software at this moment in time, and so you give tilapavir to the patient, and and the uh, the methadone levels go up within 48 hours. What's the side effect of that? Yeah, I always tell my nurse practitioner students if I give you multiple choice and one of the choices is death, select death. Okay, so that that's what that's what the, that's that's the answer. Death. So, um, and it happens uh, pretty, pretty quickly. I guess if you're dead, you're dead. It doesn't matter if it's 48 hours or 72 hours. So, um, all right, so we talked about inducers, we talked about inhibitors, we talked about autoinducers, we talked about substrates, and then there's genetic polymorphism. So, so let's say a patient is on carisoprodol. Carisoprodol is 2C19. And carisoprodol has no activity until it's metabolized by 2C19 to the methylbamate. Methylbamate is, is ancient. It, it's, it's older than me. Okay, so, so methylbamate is, a, is a, a very crummy drug. Uh, it has uh, um, a, a very high incidence of physical dependence. It's difficult to take patients off of it. If I had my way, it wouldn't even be on the market. All right, now we, we, we have a neurologist here. I don't know if you feel differently or not about car Yeah, it was uh, uh, Milltown. Is that what it was called? Yeah. So, so, um, so, uh, you know, so people start using barbiturates because presumably they're safer than, than, than methylbamate, um, and they're not that safe. So, you know, event, eventually, I mean, but they're, they're good drugs for certain issues, for sure. And then eventually, uh, benzodiazepines came along, and that was the answer to barbiturates. This is an old drug, all right? And, and uh, if you're a poor 2C19 metabolizer, it, it could actually save your life, okay, in this case, because you're not going to make a lot of methylbamate, all right? Um, but, if you're, but if you're a poor uh, 2C19 metabolizer, then you're not going to break down citalopram because that also depends on 2C19. So you see where I'm going here? These enzymes are not unique just to the pain medications. And most patients that are on pain medications, or most of my patients, um, are on also, or at least a good number, are also on antidepressants. So you can't look at these things in a silo. 
you have to look at them uh, more, more globally. So when I talk about polymorphism, it's, it's important because uh, this patient here uh, may have, may have um, so, so for each of the, of the enzymes, there are four different phenotypes, uh, which we're going to talk about, but I, I'm, I'm going to do it for you twice because I want to make sure you get the concept. So um, you can be a poor metabolite. For any one of the enzymes that we talked about, it's still in that tree, 2C19, 2D6, 3A4, 1A2, whatever it is, right? For each one of those, you can be a poor metabolizer, so you don't have that much of the gene. You can be an intermediate metabolizer. You could be an extensive metabolizer or a rapid metabolizer. An intermediate metabolizer can be 55% less than, than an extensive metabolizer. An extensive metabolizer is considered normal. What does that mean? It means that, if, if, so if you get one allele from your father, and one from your mother, and they both are wild-type alleles, then that makes you an extensive metabolizer, and, and, and you're doing what you should do. But if one or the other is wild and variant, then you'll probably be an intermediate metabolizer. That's for each gene, right? Um, if they're both variant, then they'll be on one side or the other. They'll be, um, they'll be poor metabolizers, or they'll be extensive metabolizers. So if you have two wild parents, that makes you normal, if that makes sense. Okay, so personalizing medication then with, with uh, pharmacogenetics. So this, um, I'm just going to go through this quickly because I, I want you to understand, this is a schematic that, that I created that uses puzzle pieces, and I used uh, drugs other than, than, than pain drugs uh, that we're all familiar with because it's not just about the pain drugs. It's about everything the patient's on. So here's a patient that's taken warfarin, and the warfarin uh, combines uh, uh, in, in the gut with uh, 2C9, and you can see the complex on the bottom right of, of that liver, okay? And then, and then you see what's left to go into the blood. So that's the first pass effect, right? You take it through the mouth, goes to the liver, first pass effect, 2C19, and then you see four little puzzle pieces uh, of warfarin in, in, the, uh, in the blood. So then, you, then you're put on rifampin, um, and, and, uh, and rifampin uh, is a 2C9 inducer, all right? So it's going to make more 2C9, you're going to have more, see how the complexes in that liver compared to here? There's many, many more complexes. And instead of having four warfarins in the blood, you have one warfarin in the blood. All right, so that's kind of a picture of what we already talked about. This uses the example of warfarin and amiodarone, all right, because amiodarone is a 2C9 inhibitor, all right? And so if you do that, look at all the warfarin that's left in the blood now because you're not metabolizing it. What's the side effect of that? Death. Death, yes. Okay. If you, if you do that and you do the, bar, the, the methadone thing, you can make somebody bleed and die at the same time. So um, this one shows codeine. The reason I include this one is because codeine is a prodrug. Codeine has, has little to no activity at all until it's metabolized to morphine. And it relies on uh, uh, two drugs in order to, to, to be converted. And so this shows, uh, shows that, that combination and it shows the, uh, the morphine, the purple morphines in, in the blood, all right? And then this shows what happens uh, if, if you give the patient paroxetine inhibits 2D6 um, and there's less morphine, all right? So if you have a patient that's an ultra-rapid metabolizer of 2D6, you can, you, you can end up um, converting more of the, of the codeine over to morphine and it's caused deaths. It's caused a lot of deaths in infants, infants in women that were nursing their, their, their infants, all right? Because nobody knew that they were an ultra-rapid 2C9 metabolizer um, or 2D6. All right, so PGT uh, variability in response, the general population 
has uh, 40 to 60 percent phenotype variability. So in this room, all right, if we, if we measure your enzymes, uh, half, half of you would be different. Uh, the enzymes most frequently involved are the ones listed there, uh, most of which I already talked about, 2D6, 2C19, 2C9, 3A4, 1A2, all of which are involved with methadone metabolism, uh, and CYP2E1, which is, which is more rare, so I'm not going to talk about that one. And I already told you uh, that it affects 25% of all drugs. Now, um, this is something we already talked about, um, but some people are visual and some people are more auditory, so I want you to see it. So the allele variations are wild-wild, right? Uh, wild variant and, and variant wild. And so it, it shows you that if you're a poor metabolizer and you start out with a lot of drug, then you don't get a lot of metabolites. That metabolite could be active or inactive, all right? Intermediate, you know, it basically shows you the same thing. And I, I use the capital M and a small m for intermediate because the drug may have more than one metabolite. A good example there is oxycodone, which is converted by 2D6 to oxymorphone, which is more potent, and 3A4 to noroxycodone, which is less potent, okay? Well, this is complicated, isn't it? Oh, it's giving me a headache. Okay, so uh, potential outcomes. Uh, so if you're a phenotype on top where you're a poor metabolizer, you're not making a lot of metabolites, but the active parent drug, um, the, you get increased uh, efficacy. If the parent drug is active and the metabolite is inactive and you don't break it down, then you probably need a lower dose. Make sense? If, if it's a pro-drug, which means it doesn't have any activity until it is metabolized, then you're going to probably need a higher dose. So if you're working in a pain clinic, or you're a primary care physician, and you, you just kind of, you know, you became the, the, the pain guy or gal in your community, and you end up with all the, the patients that nobody can treat, and you have all these outliers that are in high doses, it may be that if you phenotype all of them, that you have patients that are an odd phenotype, and they just need higher doses. And the reason why they ended up in your lap is because nobody wanted to raise the dose, and nobody did a genetics test. That make sense? Okay, so I'm not going to read through all these. You, you can walk through them yourself. You have access to these slides and see if these things make sense to you. Okay, now here's an example of what happens with, with the opioids. And I already went through this. Um, and it's kind of hard because I can't, I can't do this on, on, on both sides. But, so if you look on the top left, codeine, codeine relies on 2D6 to be metabolized to morphine. I told you that. Poppy seeds can be converted to morphine. Uh, morphine is converted to the 6 and 3 glucuronide metabolites. Heroin gets converted to a 6-monoacetylmorphine. Um, so basically, heroin is two morphine molecules attached together with an acetyl group. On the left side, if you look down to hydrocodone, hydrocodone is metabolized by 2D6 to hydromorphone. It's also metabolized by 3A4 to hydrocodone. We talked about that. And also dihydrocodone. Bless you. Uh, are you going to get me sick? Oh. So, so um, on the bottom... It, lo it talks about oxycodone. That's very similar to hydrocodone, the way it's metabolized. 2D6 converts it to oxymorphone, which is uh, more potent. Um, pe people say, you know, it's twice as potent. Some people say it's a third as potent. Um, I don't know exactly what the potency is, but it is definitely more potent than oxycodone. 3A4 to noroxycodone. Noroxycodone then is metabolized by 2D6 uh, to noroxymorphone. Uh, all, all those other metabolites are inactive. Oxycodone's got activity. Oxymorphone has activity. All right, so this patient on oxycodone decides to, uh, decides to go to a uh, urgent care facility, ends up on clarithromycin, and 48 hours ends up in the doctor's office lethargic. Why? It only takes 48 hours, right? It only takes 48 hours for, for inhibition. 
All right, medication metabolism. This is important, phase one and phase two. So phase one metabolism involves the cytochrome enzymes. So it lists a bunch of drugs. There's, there's others, but it lists a bunch of drugs there that are metabolized by the cytochrome system on the right side, phase one, top, right, black box. Phase two metabolism does not involve cytochrome enzymes. This is one of the reasons that, what, just only one of, the re one of the 12 reasons that the CDC guidelines irritate me because they talk about morphine equivalents. Okay, and we're going to do a lecture tomorrow on the pseudoscience of, of, of morphine daily equivalents, all right? Because if you have a patient that's bopping along on a, on a, uh, on a pretty big dose of oxycodone and they're an ultra-rapid uh, 3A4 metabolizer and a poor 2D6 metabolizer, that means that they're breaking down oxycodone to the inactive form and they're not making a lot of active metabolite. Everybody with me? Should I repeat that? Some people are going yes. Some people, I saw somebody go like this. So, so let me, so, so oxycodone. So if you, oxycodone gets metabolized by 2D6 to oxymorphone, more potent. Okay, so if you are a poor 2D6 metabolizer, you're stuck in oxycodone, which is active but less potent. And if you are a, a, um, a rapid 3A4 metabolizer, you're taking this, because you have it's going this way, you're taking this, and you're rapidly metabolizing it to the inactive form. So you can tolerate high doses of oxycodone, right? And so you go online, and, you, and it tells you, oh, well, for every 30 milligrams of oral morphine, it's equivalent to 20 milligrams of oxycodone, right? And you decide to put the patient on morphine. Well, that could be a problem. Why? Because morphine does not go through the cytochrome system. Did the CDC care about that? Don't think so. Okay? So, so uh, on the bottom are the drugs that, that, um, that go through phase two, morphine, oxymorphone, hydromorphone, tepentadol. There's one missing. Tim? Levorfenol. Right? So levorfenol is missing. All right, so, so there are a number of opioids that do not undergo cytochrome metabolism and therefore will not be affected by phenotype, at least as far as cytochrome goes, but, but will be affected for, for other, other reasons because there's also phenotypical differences in the number of opioid receptors you have, how responsible, how responsive you are to those receptors, and then some other enzymes as well, which, which we'll talk about. This chart uh, lists various antidepressants and, and CYP, uh, P450 substrates, and you can see there citalopram uh, is a 2C19, and I mentioned earlier that carisoberdol is 2C19. On the left, you see venlafaxine. Venlafaxine relies on venlafaxine doesn't have good activity as an antidepressant, and it's got even worse activity. Um, for, for neuropathic pain. What does have activity as an antidepressant and for neuropathic pain is the desmethyl venlafaxine metabolite, or O-desmethyl venlafaxine, which is also known as Prestique, okay? Um, and so if a patient gets kind of like jittery and, and, and wound up on venlafaxine and has no therapeutic benefit, it's probably because they're a poor 2D6 metabolizer. Now, um, if that same patient has no response to tramadol, it's probably for the same reason, because the active, the, the first active, tramadol's got five metabolites, and the first active one is uh, uh, O-desmethyl tramadol, all right? Um, and, that, and that relies on 2D6. And then 2B6 re, uh, converts it to another metabolite, and then 3A4. So it's complicated. And then and methadone involves all these, um, and bupropion is 2B6, and bupropion 2B6 shares a common enzyme with tramadol. This is crazy, right? I mean, how are you going to remember all this stuff? I have to write an app for this, I think. So, okay. 
So this one, existing clinical practice guidelines for pharmacogenetic biomarkers, it goes to, so, I mean, it's difficult to see this, but, um, and, you know, I don't expect you to, to look at these, these drugs and, and memorize which drugs are affected, but I want to point out that there are practice guidelines for a number of drugs uh, that are related to, the, to these isoenzymes, and it's in their package inserts. There's a lot of them. All right, here's biotransformation of atypical antipsychotics. So look, look, aripiprazole, 2D6, 3A4. I mean, these are common, commonly prescribed drugs. Uh, a lot of my patients are, are on uh, a number of these drugs. Look at clotiapine, 3A4. All right, um, I've got patients like clotiapine. I, I uh, you know, and clotiapine's another issue because clotiapine can, can widen the QTC interval. And if you've got a patient on methadone, that could be problematic. We have patients on the combination, but we watch them closely, all right? And then the patient gets admitted to the hospital and they're given moxifloxacin. What do you think about that? What's the side effect there? Death, right? Because quinolones widen the QTC interval. I actually had a case, an expert case, where the patient was in the hospital and they were given a peanut little dose of IV morphine um, and, and, and the patient died. Um, and and uh, the, the doctor uh, was being sued uh, the hospitals was being sued for overdosing the patient on like two milligrams of IM slash IV morphine when the patient was on much higher doses than that on a regular basis. I'm going to the trial, I'm like, no, no, this, you know, this doctor did not do anything wrong. And then I get a little further, and I'm looking at, at the, at the uh, ECG, and I'm like, oh, this is a problem. Let's go back and look at the drugs. 20 minutes before, the patient got moxifloxacin. That's why they died. They sued the wrong doctor. Actually, you know, everybody got sued. The doctor got sued, the pharmacy got sued, the pharmacist got sued, the nurse got sued, everybody got sued. I should go into law. Okay, so <laughs> pharmacogenetics and benzo... <laughs> yeah, I want to go into law so I could sue you <laughs> for getting me sick. Pharmacogenetics and benzodiazepines. Um, so there are differences that influence this. Uh, UGT uh, 2B15 uh, is an issue, and, and, and that's really a phase two thing. So I'm not going to get into that in a big way because you know, I could spend all afternoon here and I don't want to do that. Um, sequenced uh, treatment alternatives to relieve depression. So this talks about <clears throat> some, of the, some of the guidelines and studies that we had in, in, in treating depression uh, and the responses and the response rate uh, was, is low and then you change the drug and you need to be changing these drugs for, for, forever. All right, so the, the reason I even bring this up is because if you give a, a patient a trial of antidepressants, and sometimes they have comorbid depression and, and pain. Uh, it, it could be neuropathic pain, which responds nicely to norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. It can be other than neuropathic pain because, uh, you know, even, doing, even blocking reuptake of norepinephrine affects pain pathways on, on the descending side uh, from the brain. So um, <coughs> the, the, um, since all these enzymes are, are, are affected, it, it can affect the overall response to pain. Now, under genetics here, I've got the, the various enzymes listed. Then I've got COMT listed, catechol-O-methyltransferase. That's important because COMT, COMT is found uh, in the synapse. So think about uh, an SNRI or norepinephrine. So norepinephrine comes out into the synapse, and then the body likes to recycle. So it's reuptaken back into the synaptic cleft. And if you give it an SNRI, a serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor, it blocks the reuptake. So there's more, more norepinephrine in the synapse, okay? <clears throat> if there ends up being too much norepinephrine there, then your body can clean that up by destroying that with COMT, catechol-O-methyltransferase, all right? Once it gets into the synaptic cleft, 
It's stored in vacuoles, uh, or it can be destroyed by monoamine oxidase. All right? So if you're a person that has a lot of COMT, and you're destroying all the norepinephrine, then you may need a higher dose of opioids or another analgesic because you don't have the protecting protective mechanism from norepinephrine on the descending side. So that's another factor that we have to worry about. Um, then there's the MTHFR, uh, L-methylfolate levels and, and depression risk. So you may have a person that's bopping along on, a, 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 let's say they're on SSRI, you want to switch them to an SNRI because you think it's going to be better for their pain because serotonin alone doesn't work well for pain. Right? So you change them to an SNRI and you want, to, you want to give them a drug that's going to work for the depression and also work for their pain, and it doesn't work for their depression. It may be uh, that, that they, they don't have enough MTHFR, and therefore they're not converting uh, folate to its active form. So you can give them L-folate. Now, it's interesting. One time I get a call. I put in a, a genetics test for a patient. It was a real problem patient. At least it was labeled as a problem patient because nothing worked. Nothing worked because it had some genetic variability. So I get a text from the nurse over in the clinic, and she, sa and she said, this patient's back. She put his initials. She says, she says the patient's back. Uh, and then the next text said, the MTHFR is here. And I'm like, did the enzyme test come back? Or is she calling him a name? I, I, I don't know. It's a true story. And then finally, um, we have subpopulations. So, so here uh, shows the parent drug. Um, with, uh, you can't see the drug here. That's weird. Okay, you can't see the drug here, but the parent drug there should be methadone on the right side. It's the R enantiomer. It's metabolized by 3A4 uh, to the inactive metabolite. Um, and uh, then there's the S enantiomer, and then the S enantiomer of methadone depends on 2B6 to be metabolized to its inactive metabolite. The, the uh, S enantiomer is what's responsible um, for, for tardisades from methadone. Okay? So if, if you uh, are a poor 2B6 metabolizer, you are at a higher risk of cardiotoxicity from methadone in terms of stardosades um, and, and ventricular tachycardia. All right, so that's the reason. If you have a patient that's got an elevated QTC um, and I'm going to put them on methadone, there's a, a good reason that I would, I would put that patient on, uh, do a genetics test on that patient. And I think... Um, so I'm not going to summarize it because I think I spoke enough. And then I'm going to, oh, did they put your slides in here? I didn't see your slides. They're not there? Um, hmm. Uh-oh. You want to go next and then we'll figure out where the slides are? Do you have the slides on a, on a, a USB? Are they on, well, let's go figure it out after there. You see, I said, I said, Charles Argoff, start here. I'm coming. You, you say that, And then I the start. next slide says Michael Shatman. We, we're not the same. Uh, you don't look the same. You're not sick. <laughs> yeah, I'm not touching him, I know. Wait, uh, we don't have even... I go we, first. Um, yeah, not really. there you go. So you can figure out where your slides are. I will go talk to people. I'll be right back. you want me to go since you're going next? Sure. Okay, uh, we're going to get a little bit out of order here. Um, I apologize beforehand um, regarding my voice. Um, for those of you who've been talking with me the last couple of days, it's right now a lot better than it was. But um, Charlie and Jeff will tell you that me without a voice is kind of torture, not for everyone else, for me, um, since I like to babble a lot. Um, unlike um, uh, Jeff and Charlie, who are true scientists, I'm a, um, a pseudoscientist. I 
worked mainly in pain bioethics academically. Um, and uh, anyway, um, in terms of disclosures, I have no conflict of interest. I'm going to be talking about policy. And when we talk about policy in regard to pharmacogenomic testing and anything else, in the United States, policy these days comes to mean who's going to pay. That's all it is. Who is going to pay and who's not going to pay? So a question regarding pharmacogenomic testing, because Dr. Feudin elucidated how important some of these data can be um, in treating patients. Will anyone pay? And it also brings up the question, should anyone pay? Um, if anyone heard Dr. Gorley the other day he, in his lecture yesterday, he's saying, well, pharmacogenomics could be important, but we're just, you know, far from um, being in, a, in, a, in an important place there, or a place to um, really make a difference. Hmm. Comedy of error here. I think, I think you are. We're not, we're not moving forward. So anyway, we have to look at the um, public sector versus the private sector payment, and I'll talk a little bit about that. Also, um, I see a lot of parallels between the pharmacogenomic testing industry and the UDT industry. If you walk around the displays, you'll see a lot of um, different displays advertising pharmacogenomic testing. You've also seen a lot advertising over the years, um, certainly urine drug testing. Um, and also I want to talk about the implications for the lack of reimbursement, which has really been kind of strange and problematic. So when it comes to insurance, um, you know, if there's an evidence basis for increasing efficacy and safety of prescribing, well, logic would hold that, you know, insurers are going to pay for anything that helps increase efficacy and, and, and improve safety. Um, however, we have to remember that insurers primary concerns have nothing to do with efficacy and safety. They're all about cost containment and profitability, what they refer to not as medical ethics, but as the business ethic. And if there's ever an oxymoron, in my mind, that's it. Um, and this can be reflected in many places. For example, the refusal to um, pay for interdisciplinary pain management, which is why we've gone down from about 1,000 programs in this country to about 70 outside the VA, or their uh, refusal to um, pay for abuse to turn formulations of opioids, which we know are so safer. They're not panaceas to the opioid crisis, but we do know that they're going to take a lot more work than your average addict who has the um, attention span of about, you know, 15 seconds is not going to take the four hours to get a little bit of hydrocodone out of a medication. So importantly, insurers, they really will come right out and say, I have no fiduciary obligation to you as a patient, and certainly none to doctors. They say that their fiduciary obligation is only to their shareholders. I have a problem with that um, because it's basically saying patients go to hell, but um, that's something else. So in 2009, Medicare did begin to study uh, or at least cover some pharmacogenomic testing a good amount because the people who had been pushing on pharmacogenomics for a long time pointed out how much money they could save, how many fewer adverse events you would have, all these good things. Now, in the middle of last year, Medicare began to reject almost all pharmacogenomic testing, uh, particularly that around pain. 
that became a problem. And this is despite the fact that you know, drug-related adverse events cost the U.S. healthcare system $3.5 billion annually. And there's also data showing that in terms of the impact of ADEs, um, 10 to 17 percent of all hospitalizations of older Americans relate to these drug-related side effects, adverse effects. And you know, the broader implication, of course, with Medicare's confusion right now um, in regard to whether they're going to pay or not, is that private insurers do tend to follow Medicare's lead. And they justify their decisions by saying, well, Medicare's not paying, so we don't have to pay for it. That's not a good thing if Medicare's confused. And Medicare can be confused about certain things. Um, a systematic review was done a couple of years ago, and it not surprisingly found that insurance coverage of pharmacogenomic testing is a major barrier to its utilization. And that's not a surprise, you know, despite the potential for tremendous savings. And again, I pointed out in article after article and lecture after lecture, you know, it appears that the insurance industry is being penny-wise and pound-foolish because they can really save a lot of money. But the big secret is that the average American is going to switch insurance carriers every three to four years, closer to three, actually. So if there are adverse events, particularly if they're not the type of rapid adverse events that Jeff was speaking about, um, you know, and they're you know, adverse events such as addiction that takes place over time, an insurer is going to be happy just waiting till the next insurer comes around and picks up the pieces. Got a problem with that. So if any of you are for single-payer systems, the nice thing in single-payer systems is they own an individual's health, and that includes adverse events for life. So they make the right decisions in a more timely fashion. So one of my favorite slides. I don't like the insurance industry very much. They don't like me either. Um, insurers will cite issues of predictive value of pharmacogenomic testing. Um, and also, they'll say, hey, there are abuses of the system. Are there abuses of the system? I think that, you know, yeah, there is some over-testing that's advocated, that was advocated. And again, to me, it looks like the same kind of problem you had with the UDT lab. You know, Dr. Height and Dr. Gorlay are here, and they've talked about the algorithm by which you should treat patients at low, moderate, and high risk levels for, aber for potential aberrancy, and the number of times that you do your drug test should be contingent upon that. And yeah, there's some you know, anecdotal reports about pharmacogenomic testing companies coming around and saying, you know, test, 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 test for everything under the sun. It's good. Well, yeah, it's good for them. It's not going to necessarily help you as a clinician, and it's not necessarily going to help your patient. Um, you know, so my question is, you know, are labs going to be labs going to be labs? Are they all the same? You know, and I sometimes think that you know, as long as these labs are for profit, um, there's going to be some problems potentially, because you know, in the United States of money, there's a real push to overtest, overdo. Some say it's defensive medicine. Um, I think that a lot of it is simple profit mo uh, motive. And a systematic review is done because you probably have patients talking to you about the direct-to-consumer genetic tests out there, like 23andMe. That's one that you see advertised on TV regularly. And the systematic review found the tests to be uninformative. They have very little predictive power and do not measure genetic risk appropriately.
Um, in terms of some of the ethical issues, um, so many exist. Uh, you know, they pertain to clinical uses of pharmacogenomic testing. They pertain to research. Um, some of the broader areas include patient privacy, um, exacerbations of existing disparities in healthcare, uh, justice and equity, uh, potentially uh, depriving the quote-unquote addictive personality adequate analgesia, um, informed consent, and confidentiality and level of evidence required. I'm just going to briefly touch on these. Um, most Americans actually do express an interest in the benefits of pharmacogenomic um, testing, but express concerns regarding unauthorized sharing of test data. Um, and uh, Brothers and Rothstein wrote, personalized medicine is information intensive. And it is. This is the most information intensive thing we've seen in medicine, certainly in our lifetimes. But certainly, more information out there increases potential privacy violations. And unauthorized releases of information can result in stigma and embarrassment and marginalization. I think that this is particularly relevant when we're talking about treating patients with chronic pain, because our patients with the disease of chronic pain, not the most marginalized and stigmatized people in our society. I believe they are. Um, the greatest concern um, around privacy, as I see it, though, is discrimination and its potential. So we have a law, if anyone's familiar with it, called GINA, the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, and it took effect in 2009. Excuse me, I'm uh, going a little dry here. So when GINA came out, you know, there's good news to 